We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. You know, it's interesting that I can mention these two elderly women because we're talking this morning about uh, Peter's mother-in-law and uh, who served God faithfully as an elderly woman in uh, what is called, what's all the noise? Oh, okay. I guess it's okay. It's not like the train, you know. Y'all know what a diaconate is? A diaconate is a board of deacons that serves in your church. And quite often throughout the history of the church, there has been deaconesses, females, women that served. First Timothy chapter five, let a widow be put on the list. If she is uh, 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 more than 60 years old, uh, having been, and he goes down the list of faithfulness. First Corinthians seven says that if you're a widow or a woman divorced and are a single woman and you can stay unmarried, stay unmarried. Now, a lot of you young women wonder, what does that mean? The old women don't ask that question right here. He said, uh, so that you might have undistracted devotion to the Lord. That means you don't have to go up and visit your husband with double pneumonia. All right. And that was a diaconate, kind of like Mary and Martha. Well, uh, Peter's mother-in-law is going to rise up and serve Christ. As a matter of fact, back in the Middle Ages, they had a, a, a name for this order, they were older women, and uh, they were called, the pet name was Nana, and uh, sometimes they were called Nana, and time they came to be called nuns. That's what a nun was, that she was a serving woman. And uh, Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish scholar, called Peter's mother-in-law the first nun. She is the first deaconess that serves God. And so let's take a look at her here. In Mark, in chapter, uh, chapter 1 that Charles read to us, let's find it and look at this first of the diaconate of women. This text in verse 29 and following is called by Bible scholars the busy day because it begins in chapter 1, in verse uh, 21 and following, that morning he goes to synagogue. And then in verse 29, they ask him after uh, synagogue to come to lunch on the traditional Sabbath meal. And so he goes to lunch. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And when he does that in verse 32, they began bringing to him all who were ill. And so he spends, as it were, his Sunday technically his Saturday, he spends his Sunday healing. You ever thought you had a day off and it got interrupted? She spends her day off, or he does, serving. Let me ask you, can God interrupt your daytimer? And can God have other things he wants you to do that violate what you wanted to do? I've heard of that happening. And then in verse 33, how many gathered at the door? the whole city. And then he gets up in verse 35 the next morning to go get a little time away. Peter shows up and says, verse 37, 
They found him and said to him, what's the first word? Everyone is looking for you. So we go to the synagogue, a mother, a home, a city, and everyone. And that is called the busy day that Jesus spends. Mark, I'm sorry, what Mark is doing is in the Gospel of Mark, I love to read it because uh, it's kind of a, a, an athlete's gospel. He speaks in short sentences, okay, gets right to the point. And in Mark's gospel, uh, he strings pearls. He'll take John the Baptist, and then he'll take the baptism. Then he'll take the temptation. Then he'll take the call to the kingdom of God. Then he will take the Galilean ministry and the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then his initial challenge to the synagogue. And now the Galilean ministry is your next pearl. We're going from the calling of the leaders to the challenging of the synagogue. Now everyone in Galilee is going out and going to hear the, hear the word. And so Mark is stringing pearls. Last week I said he's taking Lincoln logs and he's building them one at a time. As a matter of fact, there is a thought by many that the first gospel is Mark and that it serves as a template for the other ones that they follow it. I don't know, but it is interesting. He is short, pithy. He is pragmatic. He is to the point. This is what Jesus did, letting those pragmatic Romans know this guy can get it done because that's what a Roman wanted to know. Well, in verse 29, let's begin here. As to answer the question of uh, verse 38, this is why I came out for. Y'all see that in verse 38? This is what I came out for. This is why he's here. Do we need to know this? Of what the Son of God lived for. What was life to you, Jesus? Well, in verse 29, you can see this is a, what you would call a, a hermeneutical landmark. It just leaps at you. You can't miss it. Note your preposition. Y'all remember what a preposition was? They went into... Capernaum, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, in verse 21, he entered the synagogue. Verse 29, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house. Out of the synagogue and then into the house. Is this sometimes in the Christian life uh, a contradiction? of leaving the church and going into the home? Can there be a disparity sometimes between conduct in church and conduct in homes? If you can't take it into the home, you can't really peddle it in the world. And so out of the synagogue, into the home, and it's the home of Peter and Andrew and probably his business partners, James and John, frequent there. And we're going to go from a place in the synagogue of great spiritual conflict where a demon will cry out and he will hush that demon. And the demon announces, you have come to destroy us. 
It's his signal approach to his ministry is to undo and to subdue the deeds of the devil. Well, in verse 29, we're going from spiritual conflict to a woman, a nameless, widowed, elderly, sick woman. What is her name? We don't know. She's a nameless woman. So we're going from great spiritual conflict to a common woman. We're going for what is called the traditional Sabbath meal. You couldn't cook on Sabbath. So you had a traditional meal that there was certain kind of readings and responses that you did. It was a big deal. Well, Peter asked him to the Sabbath meal. And in verse 30, we're going to miss it that day because it doesn't have a woman's touch. It says in verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. They might have wondered, is this person Jesus that turns water into wine, that can heal the nobleman's son of Capernaum from afar, that can cast a Satan out of the synagogue? Would it be okay with him if I ask him to look at Bertha? I just made that up, okay? <laughs> Do you think he would look at my sick mother-in-law? Is God that small that he can be the person that cast out the devil and yet you can have him look in the bedroom at this woman who can't get up? And so they might have wondered. Uh, she is no doubt a widow that Peter and his wife have taken into their home. If any of y'all had to do this, my brother and I had to take care of my mother. When she got so old, she was a good Samaritan village, and we would every day go to see her. Matter of fact, Penny Wooten's mother was, uh, and was her roommate. And so these were two women with dementia that we would visit every day. You ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? Where every day is new because you forget the earlier day? It was great. You never had to invent new jokes. You would just go in and I would bring Oreos. And I would say, hey girls, you want an Oreo? What's an Oreo? It's this. They'd bite into it and Penny's mother would say, that's real good. And I'd come in the next day. Guess what I got? What's that? Oreo, what's that? So we'd go through the same thing. They would introduce themselves to each other every day. Well, will he take care of mama? Well, and he knows that if he does, if it is known that he can heal, that what's gonna happen is gonna be verse 33. The whole city is gonna show up at the door. Everybody's gonna be there. This is where the term came, no good deed goes unpunished. Everybody's about to show up. So would you, if you were the supreme power in the cosmos, would you interrupt your day? Sabbath, a day of rest. You're gonna interrupt it and you're gonna do back-to-back -back healings all day because of a nameless woman. You ever watched the Christian narrative Gunsmoke? Young studs are not sure what I'm talking about. 
there was a particular sequence where Doc Adams, y'all remember him, uh, gets sequestered by Festus Haggins' uh, descendants, uh, ancestors, all of his clan, and they Shanghai Doc to come work on this little girl that has appendicitis, and Doc wants to go fishing, and he's real irritated at having to stop and go over. You remember Festus? These are not Cambridge scholars, all right. So he goes in to take care, and as soon as he does, he takes care of that little girl. He has to because that's his, his oath. And the next, he wakes up the next morning after she's awake and moving around a little bit, and all the Haggins are lined up. Everybody's got to get in to get, get fixed by Doc. He ain't real happy. And so if you take care of this woman, you're about to have folks in Capernaum lined up all the way down the road. Well, will he do it? In verse 31, evening, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 31, he came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. He's like Prince Charming to Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, one of them girls. And he just takes her by the hand and just raises her up. He could have just as easily said milady to her. I want to read you what Alfred Edersheim says. Jesus is told of the sickness he is besought for her who is stricken down in his presence. Disease and misery cannot continue. Bending over the sufferer, he rebuked the fever just as he had rebuked the demon in the synagogue. And for the same reason, since all disease in the view of the divine healer is the outcome of sin. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned? From dust you came and to dust you shall return, death. Then lifting her by the hand, she rose up, healed to minister unto them. It was the first diaconate of woman in the church. Might we not, might, might we not almost say it was the first diaconate in the world. A diaconate to Christ and to those that were his. The diaconate of one healed by Christ, a diaconate immediately following such healing, the first of a long course of woman's service unto Christ, in which for the first time, woman attained her true position, that she is elevated to what she was created to be, and that is the servant of God. And what a Sabbath meal it must have been after that scene in the synagogue and after that healing in the house, when Jesus was the guest, they who had witnessed it all sat to eat with him. And she who had been healed was the deaconess. Would that such were ever our Christian festive meals, enjoying the presence of God, served by those that love him. And so let's continue here. Something I want you to see is that what she does is very natural. She, verse 31, waited on them. That's what she would have done. 
but she couldn't. She now does a very common role. She does what she has always done, but she does it with a new strength and she does it with a new attitude. Later on, we will have a woman that will take her vial of alabaster nard, very expensive, and will empty it on Jesus. A woman who was a immoral woman was forgiven by him and she wept on his feet and dried it with her hair. Um, the woman at the well runs into the city. Come meet a man that told me all that I have done. And so it's interesting how women, trivia question, what women in the New Testament are inimical and enemies to Christ? Answer, none. N-O-N-E, none. There is no woman that is inimical to Christ. Isn't that interesting? If you were gonna write a book on Jesus and wanted to stay strictly biblical, you could almost call it ladies' man because all women are fascinated by him. I've been there. I'm just kidding, huh? You ain't got to laugh like that, Pat. <laughs> Don't hee-haw, it's very unbecoming to a woman. Now, he, women are fascinated at him. I think most men have to be broken. Would you agree, Doug? We're all little Darth Vader's looking to be leaders. We just don't know who to follow and we have to be broken. Women are all looking for men who have been broken that are proper leaders. And when they see Jesus, they always start singing. They fall in to follow him. And so this woman does what she has always done. And ladies, there's a great lesson here. First, Christ takes her sickness and then Christ takes her life and her service. And then that house where she is at, in verse 33, everyone shows up at the door. Ladies, have y'all ever had anybody walk in on you unannounced into your house? Uh, my wife has a drone in the street to announce the coming of anyone uninvited. All right. We can't have a cleaning girl because she doesn't have time to clean the house before they come. Makes perfect sense, okay. And so this woman is going to have her home taken over by unnameable people. Here in a little bit, Christ is gonna use it as a teaching center and they're gonna cram in so much that they can't get in the door. How would you like that, Pat? They can't get in the door of your house. And here comes a guy, four guys that have a guy that's paralyzed. How do they get in? They dig through the roof. That is your house, Pat, right down on the coffee table. All right. Let me ask you, ladies, does Christ have that authority in your life? and the wage earner in your home. Peter, he said, I'm gonna take him too. He's now my servant. You're now being supported by a preacher, God help us. Can God do that in your life? Have complete authority of whatever he wants to do with you. And that's what he did. We don't know her name, but this is the first nun. Well, in verse 32, 
a buzz begins. When evening came, you know why it says when evening came? Because that's when the previous Sabbath ended, was on the sundown, and now technically Sunday begins with sundown. And so you can't go out running around getting people on Sabbath. And everybody is waiting for the sun to go down so they can take off and get people that need to have the touch of Christ. Should that be a good, this incidentally, this day that everybody's gonna take off on, the Sabbath goes down. So what day is it? After Saturday, what day? Sunday, did you say Sunday, Libby? Okay, I wanna make sure. In India, it's a Tuesday, I believe, is, is the day. And so as soon as the sun goes down, it's now Sunday, and everybody runs off to find guys that need the touch of Jesus. Could I stop and preach right here? That's how church growth takes place. And so everybody gets somebody. They all take off. And so in verse 32, they began bringing him all who were ill and those who were demonized, that Satan has, has destroyed them. And the buzz now begins and it goes on all night long. In verse 32, the whole city gathered at the door and he heals them. Now I wanna show you something. Uh, keep your finger there in Mark and go to your left to Matthew chapter eight. And Matthew takes an interesting interpretive position on this that Mark does not busy himself with. In Matthew eight, Verse 16, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Verse 17, Matthew, who's writing to the Jews, puts an Old Testament fulfillment on it. He says, this was prophesied. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes here from Isaiah 53, verse four, 700 years earlier. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So how do I interpret that? He took our diseases. He took our infirmities. Is this positional truth? If y'all know anything about the prosperity and wealth gospel, it now is in the last 50 years, the idea all came out of Oklahoma. I don't know why, but it did. <laughs> out of some guys from Oklahoma that somehow this is positional truth and Christians aren't supposed to be sick. And they got it from this verse. By his stripes we are healed. We had a guy in the, now I wanna, I'll say this. If Christians aren't supposed to be sick, somebody better tell God because we get sick. And you sure can't say, well, it's because of sin. Wouldn't that have been comforting, Doug? What'd you do wrong, Doug? Yeah, it's a very cruel idea. We had a guy in the church I used to be in before I came to Denton Bible, and he got married and said that his house would have no medicine cabinet because he was gonna be, and he believed that till the day he died. Did y'all catch that humorous deal right there? We had a guy at Denton Bible that uh, left Denton Bible because he had become certified as a healer. And uh, he spent his days, quote, healing. I know that because his widow told me. 
that he was a healer. Okay. And so it doesn't quite work. So how do we interpret this? Well, look at, let's see what Peter said about it. If you look at 1 Peter, go to your right. To 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's our spiritual healing and our spiritual rebirth because by his stripes you were healed. He quotes Isaiah 53. He doesn't apply it to physical healing. He applies it to spiritual rebirth. And so what were the healings? They were a sign, S-E-M-E-I-O-N, a semion, and it means an attesting miracle. They were done under uh, Moses to give credence to the law. They were done under Elijah and Elisha to give credence to the prophets. They are done by Christ and the 12 to give credence to the message that fulfills the law and the prophets, which is grace. That's why you only see miracles three times in the Bible, as far as the domination of nature in a supernatural way. And they are done as simions, as signs, signification that God is at work. And so the higher reality is that of forgiveness. And that is the purpose. That's the pearl that Mark is stringing for us. That's the reason for the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and the healing of all of the Galileans that come is that he, and once he leaves the synagogue and cast out the devil, he now touches the bodies. That's not part of our salvation. If you have a choice between a saved, regenerated, eternal soul and a body that can be temporarily healed so you can die later on, take the healing of your soul. Trust me, it's far greater and it's far better. And so that's the, the pearl he is stringing, that he that cast out the devil. I know who you are, Jesus, Holy One of God. You've come to destroy us. He that destroys the works of the devil, his purpose is to grant forgiveness to souls. Forgiveness of who? We don't know their names. They're what C.T. Studd, the evangelist, called etc. evangelist. We don't know them. They're common guys like you. You feel common? I do too. We're common people. Abraham Lincoln said, God must love common people because he made so many of them. They were just common. One time I spoke at a Denton, uh, I think it was like a, it was a civic event. Might've been the uh, uh, businessmen's deal. I was the prayer and I prayed and I had to leave. And so I prayed 
And I left, went home, stopped off at the 7-Eleven. And as I went in, there was a guy that was this poor feller. He was on a walker. He was sitting on the walker, one of those little walker stands, you know. And I walked in. He went, hey, Tom Nelson. I said, hey, come on, my books get out there. I went in, the guy behind the desk went, hey, Tommy Nelson, hey, you go to Denton Bible? No, okay, that's just wondering, yeah. I said, I'm getting pretty famous. And I went home and I looked in the mirror, I had my name tag. <laughs> Drag, hee-haw, okay. <laughs> but that's the way we are, you know. We're just common guys. Are you with me? Well, this is the pearl John wants you to see, that he goes to the Galileans, old women, sick guys, guys that Satan has worked over. And I come for them. Bring them here. I just don't put out the big healing on everybody. He never does it. He just takes one guy. I'll take him. One girl. One old lady. I'll take her. Well... If you'll look at verse uh, 34, this is why he healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons, and was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. He doesn't want people to identify him as a healer. That's not why he came. He came to heal souls because those healed bodies are they going to die again, Doug? Absolutely. Sorry, Doug. They're going to die again. So that's not why he came to give just physical. It's a sign. All right. Y'all ever heard of a missionary named David Livingstone? He was a guy that went over and he was also a cartographer, a map maker. He was a, an explorer and he went over. He was a Cambridge man or Cambridge or Oxford and he went over as a doctor and as a missionary into Africa. And he charted parts of Africa. He opened up Africa for us. And, uh, and he went to these people and he brought Western medicine and technology to them. So he didn't just bring the gospel. He brought what the gospel brought. And that was one of the great things about Christianity is that it doesn't see nature as a god it sees it as something given by God that is ordered and you can dig into it with curiosity and find reasons because it's ordered. It's a cosmos. It's ordered. And so he went over there and began inoculating people and setting bones and delivering children C-section and all kinds of things that were just so good and showing them hygiene. And we couldn't find him for a long time. Remember uh, Stanley, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? He was looking for him, and he found him in a place later called Tanganyika, ministering to these, and he had, his body had been racked by a lot of diseases. This is the 1800s. And he came to him and he said, Dr. Livingstone, I've come to take you home. And he said, Mr. Stanley, you don't understand. I'm here because I want to be here. He said, this is my home. This is my people. Not just to bring medicine to them. I want to bring Christ. This higher healing to their soul. And Stanley went back. He stayed there. 
When he died, they found him dead on his knees by his bed, praying for those people. And the uh, natives took his body and walked all the way to the sea with that body so that he could be home where he was buried, I believe, in Canterbury Cathedral or Westminster, one of the two. The highest of, I mean, right there was Shakespeare where he was buried. But they didn't bury all of him. The natives kept his heart and they buried it in Africa. And so that's Jesus. He'll fix your body, but that's not the big deal. If they invent something that'll preserve your body forever and you come to my funeral or to visit me and I'm just about to die, do not give that stuff to me. I want to go home. I want to go home. So let me die. And so this is the message from God. This is what Mark is, is stringing, is that men need to be forgiven. And this is why I'm here, for little guys. Well, in verse 35, what do you do after the busy day? In the early morning, verse 32, when evening came, 35, when morning came, and it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place. He was praying. This is another little pearl by Mark. Now, Jesus cannot bring people to the knowledge of himself. Uh, let me explain. He does that, but the voice now that speaks is you and I. He uses us. He doesn't use angels. He uses us. As a matter of fact, uh, whenever God arrests Peter on the uh, Damascus road, Christ will not even tell him about his saving work. He'll say, go to uh, Damascus, you'll find a guy named Ananias. And he'll tell you, he chooses to use us. I don't know why, but he chooses to use us. He's as glorified in the preacher as in the audience. And so... Uh, this is the lesson for those who go out and bring people to him. If you're going to work hard that day, you better get up the next morning and spend time with God. He that will be much for God must be much with God. It was George Whitfield who said there, no, wait, Matthew Henry said there are two great problems with preachers those that spend all their time with men and none with God, those that spend all their time with God and none with men. It has to be both. Let me ask you a question. This is not just rhetorical. I really want you to answer this. You cultivate a devotional life. It doesn't just happen. You cultivate it. We have spent all of our non-Christian lives completely ignorant of what lies beyond this world. We don't care about that world. When we get saved, it's because God opens our heart to what is above us and everything else now dims. And so I don't care if you're Einstein, I don't care if you are uh, you know, a heavyweight boxing champ. After you get saved, you're like a little kid lisping words to heaven, amen? Now the ladies that I buried or that, that died, I'll assure you they could carry on conversations with God because they had spent the better part of 90 years doing it. 
But when you first start, the Bible is altogether new. I remember a young guy in this church, he was a coach that trusted Christ. He started reading his Bible. I got together with him. I said, what'd you read, brother? He said, I read here in John 1, this is where God created Christ. Hello? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Christ was the Word. This is where Christ was created. What about that? I said, well, they burned you back 500 years ago. <laughs> so we had to start slow. Uh, you ever been a young Christian and been in a prayer group and somebody turned to you and said, hey, would you close in prayer? They just can't do it. So it takes time to begin to cultivate. But whenever you are Christ and you've been in, you've, you're from glory and now you're here in Capernaum in a widow's home and you're working with people that Satan has wasted, you've got to stop because he's just like one of us. He became a man. And you've got to stick your head up above the clouds and get in heaven for just a second so you can go back to the ward that you're working in. And so do you withdraw? You have to leave the house. Jesus said, go into your inner room. Do you withdraw? Do you get alone? Do you get with God? Not just with a text, but with the one who gave it. Do you do it daily? Do you do it disciplined? If it's Bible study or special K, you push aside the special K. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. It's a discipline. And it's because you're needy. Because if your output exceeds your intake, your upkeep becomes your downfall. You're going to get to where you're not a prophet who's been before God. You're going to be a parrot who just quotes guys who do. And that's a tinny kind of a sound. And do you do it as a priority? I do a lot of teaching. My greatest joy is about 4 to 4.30 a.m. Yes, Doug, there is a 4.30 a.m. There is. I've been there. Okay. And I love it when I don't even need an alarm because that's my favorite time. And I wake up and I like to turn on the fire. Y'all got one of them? <laughs> I sit in front of the fire. And uh, with my special cake. Okay. And coffee. You need an addictive substance. If you're going to be great with God. All right. And so me and coffee sit down in the fire. And just sit. And just pray. And just talk. As God brings people to mind. It's just a quiet time. Then what do I do? Go back to bed. I'm 70 years old. All right. So I go back and take a little nap, get back up and go to my day. And later on, I open my Bible and we spend time. Sometimes you can do them both. But I have to do that every single day. Otherwise, I'm just going to start repeating what other people have said. And you'll be able to pick it up real quick. And so will I. And so you cultivate that because this is a new realm that you're in. You've never been here before. You cultivate it. As a matter of fact, we have a term, the, 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 I think it's the Latin term, scole, S-C-H-O-L-E. It means leisure, scole. 
And from that, we get the word scholar, school. It's a scholar is one who has to have leisure time and quiet. Would you all agree that we need quiet in our day? Quiet. Let me rail on social media just a second. That'll make you stupid, all right, because it's mental mediocrity. We don't, that's why we don't need bathroom walls anymore, because we've got Facebook, okay? And so you don't need mental mediocrity. You need time for contemplation and silence. If you were there at the Garden of Eden, you heard silence and of a man and or a woman walking with God in the cool of the day. And that's what you have to recreate. Jesus is doing Eden. And that's what you have to do to cultivate that time. And so in verse 36, you've always got these friends here. Simon and his companions, Peter, Andrew, James, and John searched for him. There have been a lot of preaching on that verse right here. If you know that everyone's looking for Christ, you better make sure he shows up with you. So you go get him. And so Simon and his companions searched for him. Why? Because in verse 37, they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. This is the literary gem that is put here like God giving baby talk to us. Why is it that you go looking for him? Because he can do what nobody else can do. He can fix your soul. Amen? Religion can't do that. Government can't do that. Politics can't do that. Science can't do that. Education can't do that. All it can do is varnish you. God can change your soul. And so everyone is looking for you. There have been more sermons preached on that verse, on that idea. You give me any element of human society, give me time and I'll show you how ultimately they're looking to be reconnected to God. Politics, how do we rule correctly? The judicial, how do we rule correctly? Coaches, how do I work with young men and young women correctly? If you don't know God, all you've got is math, material, matter without meaning. And that is a horror novel where you're asking and longing and no one answers. That's Twilight Zone. That's horror. The only way that we can find right living, right belief, how to understand all around us is we've got to go beyond this physical world and God has to speak. Amen? Amen. You, it doesn't matter if you're going to go beyond this world because you chew peyote or you do mescaline or LSD or smoke pot and you try to have, what did we call it in the 60s? You'll take a trip and you get your magic carpet ride and you try to go outside of yourself or if you assume the lotus position and you're going to meditate and go beyond it, you're not. All you're going to hear is basically gastric juices on you. You're not going to be in there. God has to speak 
to where we can understand him. And that's what is called the incarnation and the Bible. And so everyone is looking for you. And that's why when I've got a Bible and, I want, and I'm called to teach anywhere, there's no one that I can't speak to because they're all looking for him. The word made flesh. Plato, as we go through life, we must listen to the best opinions of men and hold to it as to a ship in a storm, unless we have a more certain word of God. Plato, 300 BC. And so in verse 37, everyone's looking for you. Amen, Mark. You think he meant the Romans to see that? You're looking for Christ. Oh, if you got time, read where Paul went to the philosophic school in Athens at Mars Hill. And he's looking at all their idols and it says his spirit is provoked. And he says, men of Athens, I observe you're very superstitious. You guys are reaching in the dark. And he said, I notice you've got an idol over here to an unknown God. They wanted to have an unknown God so they wouldn't make one mad because they couldn't find the truth. And they had spent their day, y'all remember in Acts 17? Said they spent their day discussing anything new. Does anybody have a novel idea? And Paul said, what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to tell you. This is who you're looking for. And so that's called Paul's Mars Hill Discourse. Well, you know, it's interesting. The word Mars in uh, Greek is Aries. And it is from the term aredas that means excellence from whence we get the word art. That which is excellent. Paul said, I've got something for you. Well, in verse 38, Jesus said to them, you know, I'd have said to Peter, would you give me five minutes, pal? Just give me a break. Verse 38, you want to, let me show you a leader. And he said to them, what's the first three words? Let's go. Isn't that something? Let's go. If you want to put let's roll, I think that's in the living Bible. Let's roll. And let's go somewhere else. Peter's view of everyone merely meant everybody in Capernaum. Jesus said, yes, everyone is looking for me, but my everyone is bigger than your everyone. All you're looking for is the guys on your street. He said, let's go to the towns nearby. Let's don't overlook anybody. Don't run off to Sanger when Crumb is languishing in wickedness. Don't even and let's, in verse 38, what's he want to do? What's your verb? Preach. We're not going to do miracles. Miracles are to signify that I'm a, of God. So you'll sit there long enough and hear what I think when I take the Old Testament and open it up and show you about God and sin and righteousness and salvation and true living and eternal life. I want to preach. Jesus never goes to a place to heal he heals so people will sit down and listen to him, open their minds. Can you fix a guy's body and he still be an idiot? Let's continue. In verse 39, he said, 38, that's what I came out for. 
And so 39, he went into their synagogues. Let's go and open the Bible and let's correct 500 years of legalistic error that is set into these people. And let's call them back to the standard. That's what I came for, is to correct men's thoughts about God. Isn't that a great text? Let me tell you what I've learned in all my vast experience. This is what I've learned. That a church, if it's going to be worth a dern, has to do three things and only. It can mess up in all other areas, but it's got to do three things. Great ideas are always blinding flashes of the obvious. They're never complicated. It's like Occam's razor. It's the shortest point. You have to have in a church a clarity of understanding about biblical inerrancy. This book can't be seen as tainted. Amen? Because I've got nothing to say other than the Bible. And so the pulpit, the Bible and those who handle it, they can't use the pulpit in this area as the stage for their theatrics. It has to be the Bible, all right? The, the instance that your church loses its touch on inerrancy, you're dead. You hadn't got a cut dog's chance, you're dead. You have just made an opening in a balloon and it's going to pop. You're no good. And so the Bible has to stay paramount. Secondly, biblical righteousness has to proceed. Meaning what the Bible says about sex, the tongue, relationships, marriage, kids, child-rearing, gender, race, government. The biblical standard of righteousness can't move. I can't, and whoever preaches here can't change the Bible's moral standard because somebody in L.A. disagrees, because somebody in Wall Street disagrees. You dig? It's got to be the iron scepter of the divine will. And then thirdly, the mission of your church has to be evangelism. That God will add to our number daily those who are being saved. You know why? Because when you get people that are in the Bible, lesson one, that live the Bible, lesson two, they're going to get out our church probably reaches 20,000 people a week of people that we know. Do y'all know five non-Christians by first name basis? I do. We probably reach 20,000 people a week. And so uh, that's where evangelism comes from, is being an aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are being lost from the one an aroma from death to death, the other from life to life, that they have to smell life when we get with them. And so, if we no longer become purposeful, that's why I came out for, is to reach people. Once we lose that, we're done. 
because we're going to elevate a minor thing to a major thing, and now God's hand is off of us. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You bring them to Christ. Then teach them to obey all that I commanded you, the Bible and biblical righteousness. And lo, I am I'm with you. You don't have to do this yourself. I'm with you. My authority, my word, my presence. Now, that's, that took me about five minutes, and it's done. That's all you need to know. Churches that mess up lose one of those three. And if you miss the first one, you're going to miss the next two. You have to stay. You, incidentally, you know how many seminaries are in the United States that are postgraduate seminaries that train pastors that hold the biblical inerrancy? Take a guess. Ten. That's all. We got ten. A lot of Bible colleges, but we got ten postgraduate seminaries that hold the biblical inerrancy. And they're all struggling in jeopardy. Because new guys come in that change their ideas. And so if a church stays biblical, holy, and purposeful, God's hand is on them. Right there. Let me read you something to quit here by Mr. Edersheim. He wrote, So ended that Sabbath in Capernaum, a Sabbath of healing, joy, and true rest. But far and wide into every place of the country around, throughout all the regions of Galilee, spread the tidings and with them the fame of him whom demons must obey. Though they dare not pronounce him the son of God, on men's ears fell his name with soft sweetness of infinite promise, quote, like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. Capernaum. Father in heaven, uh, this is a lesson that uh, I'm sure old Young Mark in his days prayed and said, God, as I write this down, I pray that people will hear it. That the uh, purpose of Christ is to touch lives. To touch, not just groups, but individuals. Nameless, old, sick, dying individuals. Everyone is looking for you. Let's go. Because that's why I came. And so if there is some boy, girl, man or woman that is confined within the, uh, the invisible ceiling above us of darkness toward God, that they know about math and education and history and economics and they may be doctors, they can maybe put in a new heart, but they do not know him from whence the heart came. They do not know, uh, they may be astronauts that can go to the moon, but they don't know who made it. And so we little gerbils down here on our treadmills, wondering what's above us. That's what you major in. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He came to his own. His own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of flesh, nor of bloods, nor the will of man, but were born of God. And so place within them the seed this morning that God has given his word in his son who died upon a cross to be punished for us. And by simply receiving Christ as Savior, they can become new. And Father, we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.